Hi, this is Josh Jackson from WRTI. Dangerous Sounds is supported by Jazz Denmark, the Danish Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Danish Arts Foundation, the Augustinus Foundation, and the members of WRTI. The late afternoon air is thick. A slender man in a bowler hat with a cigar sticking out of the side of his mouth walks briskly down one of Copenhagen's bustling streets, zigzagging through the traffic of horse-drawn carriages and cyclists. He tips his hat and smiles at the people who recognize him before gracefully leaping over the large iron chain that hangs in front of the odd fellow's mansion. But he stops abruptly before he gets to the door and his cheeky smile suddenly vanishes. A group of younger men have gathered in front of the entrance. They seem relatively relaxed, despite being in full military uniform, but a small black iron cross hangs above each of their left breast pockets. The man with the bowler hat and cigar has gotten used to seeing Nazi soldiers in the street. But these men are different. They're Danes, Nazi collaborators, and their presence here and now means it's gonna be a rough night. Last time they came to one of his concerts, they set off stink bombs during the show, and it was hours before it was safe for him and the rest of the band to leave. Hello, Matheson. Welcome, one of them mutters. We want to sit in the front, so we thought we'd get here early. We've been looking forward to this. The man in the bowler hat, Leo Matheson, the greatest piano player in Denmark, says nothing. He strokes his thin mustache and focuses all of his concentration on not biting all the way through the cigar. He steps past them and through the entrance as the uniformed men shoot daggers with their eyes. Yeah, so I'm here. All fine, yeah. You're listening to Dangerous Sounds, a podcast about the story of jazz in Denmark. This is episode two, which I call Two Kings and a Queen. My name is Kristen Osgood. And we begin this episode in the first part of the 1940s during the Nazi occupation of Denmark. The Nazi horde violated our borders in the early morning hours of April 9th, 1940. It's difficult to imagine now, but at the time, Music like this was considered dangerous. This is Danish pianist and jazz legend Leo Matisse singing his song Take It Easy, which has been a nationally celebrated classic ever since its debut in 1940. At the time, this little tune about relaxing and having fun is so dangerous that Leo Matisen has to scat the melody instead of singing the actual English lyrics. In Denmark, the Nazis have banned singing in English and are generally doing their best to make life miserable for musicians and jazz enthusiasts who play and appreciate this African-American art form directly challenging the Nazi order and control. But the Danish resistance was not broken. For while the five horrible years of Nazi occupation are hard on Danish society, they're actually 
somehow good for jazz. In this episode, we'll find out how the Nazi occupation paved the way for the first golden age of jazz in Denmark. And we'll trace the paths of two musical kings. You've already met the first king in our story, Leo the Lion Matthiesen. The other king is Sven Asmussen, Denmark's first great jazz soloist and a world-famous violinist. The two kings, Leo Matthiesen and Sven Asmussen, helped to bring jazz music to the ears and lives of all the people of Denmark in the face of Nazi opposition. A noble deed Sven Asmussen will pay dearly for. I was one of several hundred honorable Danes who were intercepted on the 29th of August. They sent me to Berlin, accompanied by two German Gestapo officers. They put me in a cell on the third floor of the Gestapo prison on Alexanderplatz. Now you've met the two kings of our story, but we still miss the queen. Here she is. Her name is Kahn Jönsson. We'll return to her a bit later. Our story starts before Nazis have any say in what's played or heard in Denmark. Here's Leo Matthiesen, our first king, presenting one of his own compositions, Meet the Duke, a tribute to his idol, Duke Ellington. Og jeg kalder den for Meet the Duke. Yes, sir. The Lion Matthiesen has been with us almost since the very beginning. Denmark's first saxophone had barely landed in the hands of Valdemar Eiberg before Leo, who's 12 years younger, also has an itch to swing. It doesn't take long before word of him spreads around the Copenhagen jazz scene. Talk of a young pianist who plays in a wild style. Violinist Otto Lington has heard the rumors and invites the young and green Leo to join his trio. We were actually looking for a piano player and we had heard about Leo, this amazing pianist who I dare say remains peerless to this day. The greatest homegrown jazz talent Denmark has ever produced. The trio's name? We three. We three. We were ahead of our time, and not a huge success at the beginning. People didn't understand what we were doing. We 
We three plays music from the future that borders on the incomprehensible for the listeners at the time. Remember, this is the late 20s and still a few years before the Danes fully embraced jazz music. Wild Cow. With Wild Cow, the new electric recording technique came in use. The lively Earl Heinz-like piano playing you hear on the tune established the 22-year-old Leo Matthiesen as Denmark's first real jazz pianist. The Danish audience isn't quite ready for the brain-breaking music of Leo the Lion, and the Danish reviewers don't understand the new sound just yet, so Matthiesen ends up performing in Sweden and Germany for the next three years. When he returns home, the ears of Danish listeners have matured, gradually becoming accustomed to the new sound of jazz. And after Louis Armstrong disintegrated Tivoli's concert hall in 1933, the last remnants of holdouts find themselves in the minority. The door into the new era of jazz wasn't politely opened, but kicked in, knocked all the way off its hinges. While King Leo blows the minds of Danes with his future music, our second king of the Golden Age, Sven Asmussen, finds his way into the jazz universe. This is the sound of his violin. And this is his voice. Yeah, mit fulde navn er Sven Harald Christian Asmussen. Født Sven grows up in an upper-middle-class family in a large villa in Copenhagen. His parents are German, and Sven grows up speaking two languages. One day, a respected music professor from Austria visits Asmussen's home. The professor looks at Sven's large hands and immediately states that the young boy has one of two futures ahead of him. Being a boxer or a violinist. Of the two options, the latter immediately seems more appropriate to the well-to-do family living in the villa. And so, shortly after, a seven-year-old Sven Asmussen picks up a violin and rests it on his shoulder for the very first time. I think the first stuff that really hit me was Duke Ellington's Creole Love Call. Sven is 12 years old the first time he hears Duke Ellington. It's light years away from the German songs he sings with his mother, or Beethoven's Minuet in G major, which he battles with in his violin lessons. It swings, it's exotic, alluring, and American. Back then, America seemed so far away. 
It was a totally and completely foreign, unattainable dreamland. The people who lived there and played jazz were like gods in a far-off universe. At this point, things start to move quickly for Sven. He's just a teenager, but already playing professionally in all sorts of different settings. He also starts performing outside of Denmark. He tours with the Mills Brothers and with Josephine Baker. He meets Django Renard in Paris, who invites him to join his band. It's an offer you can't refuse, Yet, Sven does. The now 23-year-old Sven Asmussen is an A-list superstar who can pick and choose from projects and offers around the world. Let's fast forward to 1940 a few months before Nazi Germany's occupation of Denmark begins. The two kings of Copenhagen's jazz scene, Leo Mathiesen and Sven Asmussen, each rule over their respective areas of the city. Asmussen is an elegant perfectionist, both in his own appearance, but especially when it comes to his style of playing. Thiessen, on the other hand, is wild, rowdy and unruly and can be found almost every weekend at the restaurant Munich in Copenhagen where he lets loose behind the piano through a thick fog of tobacco smoke. Leo and Asmussen were total opposites. Leo was completely spontaneous and really in tune with his subconscious mind. When he played, it was like he was turning a musical kaleidoscope for the people in the audience. Leo is a total showman and impossible to miss. The pencil-thin mustache, hair sharply parted down the middle, and the signature cigar between his teeth that dances to the swing beat audiences now love almost as much as the musicians themselves do. When Leo and his band play, the place is packed. There's a dank, heavy combination of tobacco and sweat in the air. People dance and clap and sing and drink, but Leo has an ace up his sleeve that never fails to take things to another level. Even when it seems like things can't get any hotter, he calls Anita. As if on cue, people leap up on the tables and start wailing away on air trumpets, banging on bottles and kicking chairs to the side of the room if they get in the way of the countless couples dancing improvised jitterbugs. 
These weekend nights at the restaurant Munich make the Nazi darkness around Europe seem far away. But as the warm spring air finally reaches Denmark, Germany occupies Copenhagen. With it comes the unrest that has consumed the entire continent and beyond. The invasion of peaceful and innocent Denmark. But before we jump into wartime, I would like to introduce the queen of our story. At this point in time, jazz is for men. Men play it and bring it to the people. Men review and critique the other men who play it. Men make and break its rules. Women are choir singers and dance partners and not much else. But one woman is different. Her name is Khan Jönsson. The lyrics to Why is Happiness So Volatile translate into something like this. Why is happiness so volatile? And why is happiness so short? And why is life so meaninglessly hard? It's a beautiful melody paired with pretty gloomy lyrics. Unfortunately for her and us, the song's dark, depressing lyrics go hand in hand with Karen Jönsson's own disposition. She lives in the shadow of our two kings, who take up most of the attention of the jazz audience in Denmark in the 30s and 40s. Karen Jönsson is already composing music at the age of 12. At 20, she begins working in films and theater pieces, singing and playing her own songs. Make no mistake, Karen Jönsson is beloved and quite popular. But most of the attention and praise she receives make some obvious bordering on creepy references to her cuteness and childlike charm. Just listen to this. Karen Jönsson, the little kitten who makes sparks fly as she sits at the piano, much to the delight of the audience. When she plays, she's a petite-beaked sorceress, so connected to the keys that it borders on the improbable. The words are technically positive, and then again, little kitten, a sorceress. No serious artist wants to be thought of or written about in this way. For Karen Jönsson, life as an entertainer isn't exactly what she imagined for herself, wanting to write great music and become an international star. It doesn't take long for her to lose patience with being branded and dismissed as cute. Today, no one would question her abilities as a singer-songwriter and pianist. But plenty of people did back then. Here's a sample of a review from 1937. Honestly, the girl child doesn't play very well. She lacks edge and just doesn't swing. Her lyrics are blatantly awful. Simply put, she has nothing to do with jazz. 
Yunsan has had enough of Denmark, and as the Nazis approach, she moves to neutral Sweden in search of a fresh start. At this point, she's 30 years old, with two failed marriages behind her and a number of engagements that have been called off. Several of her partners have done everything they could to discourage her from performing at all. But things are no better for her in Sweden. While Leo Mathiesen and Sven Asmussen are hailed as geniuses and visionaries who an entire nation can unite around during tough times, she's still just a sweet kitten whose paws dance gracefully along the piano keys. And her love life is still as chaotic and tumultuous as ever. For Karen Jönsson, life in Sweden is no dream come true, and she decides to leave. She agrees to play a concert in Copenhagen in the winter of 1942, and when she does, she has no plans of ever returning to Sweden again. But before she packs her suitcase, she has one last job in Stockholm. On November 29, 1942, Karen Jönsson sits behind a grand piano in the same smoky bar she's played at for the last several nights in a row. The room is full and the audience is happy. They have no idea she's booked a one-way ticket to Copenhagen for the next day. She sits alone behind the grand piano on stage, dressed in a midnight blue knee-length dress and elegant pearl earrings. She's beautiful. Her hands are sweaty and tremble slightly, but hit the right keys, finding the intended notes, just as they always do. Her melodies float out into the room and nestle around listeners like a heartfelt embrace. Everyone in the room can feel the intimate emotion in the music, but she's not completely present herself. She's in and out of her own world, disappearing and escaping into the music. She flashes her famous smile, as she always does when she's on, but tonight she seems a bit blue. It's almost 11 p.m., and Jonsen goes into her final tune and biggest hit. A reliable crowd-pleaser entitled, Why is Happiness So Volatile? After the concert, Janssen wanders alone through the quiet streets of Stockholm. A fresh dusting of snow is falling, and the roads are clear and smooth like mirrors. With short, careful steps, she finds her way back to her hotel. She exchanges a few pleasantries with the night porter and heads up the spiral staircase to her room. She locks the door behind her. Pouring herself a glass of water, she sits on the edge of the bed and sighs. She crawls under the blanket and slips into a deep sleep. They'll find her the next morning. Three days later, she'll be dead, gone forever. She's only 33. 
the official cause of death is noted as pneumonia. Karen Jönsson is alone when she dies. Karen Jönsson is alone when she dies. Her funeral, however, is another story, and the crowds of fans and admirers who come to honor their fallen star fill the chapel and spill out onto the street. It's almost as if people have suddenly realized and acknowledged Karen Jönsson's immense talent in her absence, although it will only dawn on listeners outside of Scandinavia decades later. Regardless, Denmark has lost its first jazz queen long before she managed to give the world everything she had to offer. The Nazi hordes violated our borders in the early morning hours of April 9th, 1940. It's a dark and serious time. The Nazi occupation of Denmark begins April 9th, 1940. And from that day on, nothing is as it was before. The occupying forces are less than enthusiastic about the spread of American jazz. On the 15th of August 1940, restaurants and concert venues are required to close at 8 p.m. Soon after, singing in English is strictly forbidden. As the war progresses, jazz music becomes a symbol of resistance. Performers and listeners of the genre are heralded as rebel heroes amongst most Danes and treated as enemies by the Nazis. Lots of people still remember how we used our ridiculous jazz music as a means of a demonstration against the German occupation. Though venues are forced to close early, the jazz clubs are full in Copenhagen. The clubs become a welcome and much-needed escape from the scary reality of things. And although the occupation is horrible for most Danes, the general hardship is good for the growth and expansion of Danish jazz. Here, Sven Asmussen tells us about the golden swing era. Swing music was a way for kids to piss off their parents and later on the Germans. They hated it. There were a whole bunch of us who competed for the attention of the Danish crowds. Of course, Leo Mathiesen was there. He played at restaurant Munich, which was a little rougher than at Blue Heaven, where I played. The jazz club Blue Heaven, which Asmussen talks about here, is actually his own club. He opens it up in 1941 as an alternative to the unruliness of restaurant Munich, where Leo Mathiesen is still banging on the keys just a few blocks away. At Sven Asmussen's jazz club, everything is stylish and elegant and nothing is left to chance. He plays there with his quintet every night and the band's uniform on stage is nothing less than white tuxedos with white shoes, slicked and straightened hair and small black bow ties. The music at Blue Heaven has to swing the right way. The rhythms and breaks need to be right in the pocket and the sound has to be crisp and delicious. 
Mr. Jensen, slap that bass. Oh boy, yes, yes, yes. But escapes to parallel universes are often only temporary. And the same holds true for Blue Heaven. Here's Sven Asmussen telling us in his own words. Sometimes six or eight of them would suddenly come in. They were Danish defectors in Nazi uniforms, demanding Vienna waltzes. I had to tell them that it was outside our repertoire. They could call in a troop of Nazi guards anytime they wanted to. So it was fortunate that I, as a second-generation immigrant born to German parents, could talk to them in their own language. Pressure from the occupying forces increases, and in the spring of 1943, after a year and a half of constant working in and performing at his own club, the thrill is totally gone for Sven Asmussen. Sven's dream come true, a nightclub filled with the sounds of American swing jazz, has finally collapsed. It's during this time that his opinion of the jazz scene in Denmark sours. In fact, he's so disenchanted that shortly after Blue Heaven closes its doors, the newspaper BT runs an interview with him with the headline, A Jazz Man Speaks the Truth. Jazz is dead. In the interview, Sven says, among other things, that jazz has no future, that it hasn't been developed significantly since Louis Armstrong's first recording, and that improvisational possibilities have been exhausted and audiences will only ever hear the same things over and over again. Sven Asmussen, the king of Danish swing and one of the greatest talents in the history of Danish jazz, is 27 years old and seems to be done with it all. His remarks in the interview don't go over very well in Danish jazz circles, and Sven is criticized, teased, even ridiculed by his colleagues. Leo Matisen jokes that Sven is probably just tired of hearing himself play all the same stuff over and over again, and that the genre would be just fine without him. But for Sven Asmussen, the adventure is over. Jazz is dead, along with his club, which is subsequently boarded up. He takes a job performing in a variety show, singing, dancing and playing violin in sketches. At this point in the summer of 1943, the Danish government is on the verge of resigning. Nazi Germany believes that the policy towards Jews and communists in particular is too weak, while at the same time the moral decline of the Danish youth is not given enough attention. The newly created Schallburg Corps, made up of Danish Nazi sympathizers, is sent out around the city to harass, intimidate and terrorize. Life as a jazz musician in the 1940s is full of extremes. One moment you can be hailed as a hero by audiences, and the next you're running for your life with a brigade of Nazis chasing you. But in the evening, after closing time, behind thick curtains, you might find yourself in the presence of royalty. The last remaining Danish jazz king, Leo Matisen. Here's trumpeter Erik Parker, who describes what could happen on any given night back then. A 
Once the lights were off and Leo had a few drinks, he'd go up to the piano and sit down and play. It was in those moments that he was at his best, because something came out of the piano that I will never, ever forget. It was Stravinsky Matissen. Sometimes it was Debussy Matissen. And the best of it all was when it was Matissen Matissen. While Leo's fingers dance wildly and freely across the keys in the shelter of the night, Sven Asmussen has dived headfirst into a different form of showbiz altogether. He's as much a comedian as a musician in his current line of work, and even jokes about having declared jazz dead as he performs for his new audiences. But the fun and games quickly come to an end. One morning in early August, Svend's doorbell rings. Several German soldiers take him, lead him down the street, and push him into a truck, away from his pregnant wife. No one knows exactly why he's been taken. Maybe it has something to do with Blue Heaven, his former chess club, but the Nazis won't say. Rumors start to circulate. Someone claims they saw him hanging, half dead, with no fingernails. Others swear they touched his coffin. In reality, Sven is in a Gestapo prison cell in Berlin. This tiny cell could drive anyone mad. Two steps wide, three steps long. There's a short bench along one wall, but he's not allowed to sit on it during the day. And he's not allowed to stand on the stool either, because then he might get a momentary view out of the little barred window just under the ceiling. Through the wall, he can hear the heavy rattle of chains his neighbor in the next cell over has been put in after he broke the rules. In the evening, when he's finally allowed to go to sleep, that's when the bombing begins. He can hear American and British warplanes whizzing over the building as he gets down on the floor and crawls into a corner, hiding under a raggedy rug. Twice a day, a guard pushes a bowl of soup across the cell floor to him with a stick. Apart from the guard, the only living thing he sees are the well-fed bedbugs he shares his accommodations with. He still doesn't know why he's locked up. He still doesn't know how long he'll be here. He tries to keep the intense loneliness and madness at bay by rehearsing dance steps. Two steps one way, two steps the other. One step, two steps, three steps. He prepares hypothetical potential self-defense speeches and arguments in German, just in case he's lucky enough to gain an audience with an interrogator someday. He hopes he might be able to do some time as prison labor in one of the concentration camps he's heard of. He knows nothing of their horrors. 
He just wants to be around people. Back home, everyone knows him. But here, he's just prisoner 1955. He thinks about his family, his two-year-old daughter, the baby on the way, and of course, their mother. He misses his violin. One day, something finally happens. He's taken from his cell and driven to the Gestapo headquarters in Berlin. He must be the first person ever to actually look forward to a Nazi interrogation. The interrogator places photographs of people on the table in front of him, but he doesn't recognize anyone. They still won't even tell him why he's being held. Then they send him back to his cell, saying that they want to hear more soon. Several weeks go by. The last bit of hope fades. All is lost. His mind idles. His brain is breaking. He's startled when the cell door suddenly opens one day. The same interrogator stands before him. Hello, Mr. Asmussen. You will be sent home tomorrow. Sven Asmussen collapses to the floor, weeping for the first time in his adult life. The big question of why Sven Asmussen was imprisoned has to this day never been answered clearly. Maybe the Nazis wanted to state an example out of someone and chose him because he was famous for playing American-style swing jazz. Also, it's not totally clear why his time in prison didn't get even worse. Many other inmates spent years there without ever being put on trial. Sven returns home after a month and a half in prison. He's welcomed home as a hero, and extra performances of the variety show are arranged so he can once again sing the tunes and dance the steps he practiced over and over in his cell. Surrender on 4th May of German forces in Holland, northwest Germany and Denmark. On May 4th, 1945, the Nazis leave Denmark. And the Danish jazz scene, which has been quite isolated for five years, can once again open up. Leo Matthiesen can finally sing Take It Easy Boy Boy in English again. He can even visit the promised land all the way across the Atlantic to get new inspiration. And when the war ends, Sven Asmussen's fingers begin to tingle. He can feel the spark of life creep back into the music he once publicly declared dead. In March of 1943, you told BT that jazz was dead, yes, and it was an embarrassing mistake. It turned out not to be the case. One time when I definitely got it wrong. So things are swinging again, and Sven Asmussen reclaims his throne next to Leo Matthiesen as king, and everything is as it used to be. But then... Here comes a new sound from America. Bebop has come to Denmark. 
and jazz will never be the same again. Bebop isn't exactly Sven Asperson's cup of tea at first. But these new ideas will also find their way into Asmussen's music. Sven Asmussen has a long, successful career and fully lives up to his title of Jazz King, pushing boundaries and playing dangerous sounds for many decades. In the 70s, for example, he experiments with the wah-wah pedal on his violin. Sven plays until he's 90 and lives to be over 100 years old. But like Karl Jönsson, whose life was cut short, Leo Mathiesen's life also moves in a tragic direction. After the war, his whole world starts to crumble around him. He can't keep his bands together, he's terrible with money, and eventually even his thoughts and mind escape him. In 1953, the ingenious free thinker Leo Mathiesen is 47 years old. His once infectious smile is now stiff, and the twinkle in his eyes has faded into an empty gaze. He checks into Ries Hospitalet in Copenhagen. It's hard to keep track of all the faces that come into view from his position on the bed. First, there was an older man, then a younger woman, then someone with a surgical mask, then someone with glasses, then someone with a mask and glasses, or was that the same person he saw before? The bed begins to move underneath him. The sounds around him change and he smiles nervously, looking from side to side and up at the ceiling. The bed stops moving. He hears a loud metallic sound and is suddenly blinded by an intense electronic flash that feels like it's piercing through his forehead. His vision disappears and he hears a voice say something, but he can't make out the words. He thinks maybe it's Spanish, but he's confused. He fumbles through something of a reply and then both his confusion and train of thought grind to a halt. difficult for him to speak. Words escape him, and he's mostly limited to short, jumpy, abbreviated phrases. He feels okay otherwise, and is in a good mood. At least he thinks so. He examines his reflection in the mirror next to the bed. He looks at the long scar along his hairline, but doesn't find it off-putting or even strange. In fact, in the next moment, he barely notices it. A calm and kind woman takes him under her arm. She's wearing a white coat, but the walls are painted bright, solid colors, and the furniture looks quaint and well-loved. Together they enter the great hall. It's time for afternoon coffee. There's an upright piano in the corner of the room. It looks inviting. He smiles and hums a barely audible melody to himself as he gazes at the instrument. 
Would you like to play, Mr. Matheson? Asked the friendly woman on his arm. Yes, um, yes. Very much. Maybe a little later, though, in a bit. He doesn't remember they've had the same interaction every day for weeks. That she asked the same question yesterday and the day before that and three months ago. And that his reply is the same every time. Leo Matisen has developed cerebral atrophy. The cells in his brain are dying and the organ itself is shrinking. He's admitted to a psychiatric hospital and later to a nursing home where he lives for another 13 years. It's a long, slow decline for Leo the Lion. He dies in 1969, but just before his condition starts to affect his brain, he manages to accompany the great American tenor saxophonist Coleman Hawkins in Copenhagen in 1950. It's one of the final recordings of Leo Matisen, and I think we should end it here. This was episode two of Dangerous Sounds, a series about the development of Danish jazz. In our next episode, modernism and bebop are coming. And I look forward to introducing you to Jan Elnif, possibly the most gifted drummer in Denmark of all time. My name is Kristen Osgood. I'll be back with episode three before you know it. Dangerous Sounds is produced by Mono Mono and distributed by WRTI Philadelphia. Creston Osgood is the host with narrator Joan as Policewoman. Special thanks to Eva Frost at Jazz Denmark, project manager Sue Edwards, and Josh Jackson from WRTI. Learn more about our mission to champion music as a vital cultural resource. Visit WRTI.org.